What an incredible story. What an iconic story. A story well known to those who have attended Sunday school. Uh, Some of you older people like me will have watched a flannel graph David fight a flannel graph Goliath and had it play out that way. But any child who has spent any amount of time in Sunday school would be familiar with this story. What's interesting about this story, however, it's not just within the church that it's known. One commentator noted that the story of David and Goliath, quote, has become the primary historical metaphor in Western culture for describing any individual or group who overcomes seemingly insurmountable odds to defeat an oppressor. Let me give you an example of that from pop culture. In 1985, a movie with the David and Goliath theme took North America by storm. The story depicts an underdog boxer named Rocky Balboa facing the towering and seemingly unbeatable opponent, Russian Ivan Drago. Drago is a physical specimen of a man who, through the use of performance-enhancing drugs, is significantly bigger and stronger than Rocky. He represents an invincible adversary. Yet, against seemingly insurmountable odds, the American Rocky Balboa defeats Ivan Drago in the boxing ring. And so, this is a David and Goliath story. And one of the interesting things about that particular movie is there are layers to it. The 1980 film Rocky IV holds symbolic value, particularly in the context of the Cold War between the United States and the Soviet Union. The American champion Rocky Balboa is facing the Soviet challenger, and this represents an ideological clash between two Cold War superpowers. Rocky embodies the individualism and freedom and perseverance enshrined in American values. Whereas Drago represents, from the West perspective at least, the disciplined but dirty, successful but strict, fierce but faceless ideology of communism. And of course, so you know, spoiler, freedom wins. Now what is true about that David and Goliath story called Rocky IV is true about the original story. That is to say there are layers to it. Yes, it is a classic confrontation between an unimpressive but virtuous underdog who is facing a sinister and seemingly superior antagonist. But biblically, it represents so much more than just a battleground between two men. We are going to consider three layers or facets of this fight. This is a conflict of individual rivalry. It's a conflict of national hostility. And it's a conflict of universal animosity. As we consider those layers, those facets of this conflict, I want you to keep in mind what I think is a one-sentence summary of this story's main idea. God always prevails, so do not defy him. God always prevails, 
So do not defy him. Our first point, a conflict of individual rivalry. At face value, the story of David and Goliath is just that. It's a conflict between an Israelite shepherd and a Philistine warrior. The the author of 1 Samuel wants to draw our attention to this by how much time he spends describing each of the combatants. Philistia has a massive man representing them. Goliath stands over nine feet tall. And mind you, this is no long and lanky giant. His armor and weapons indicates that he must be massive and strong. Beneath a helmet of bronze, he is covered in body armor, which weighed over 120 pounds. He had a javelin strapped to his back. He would use that to strike opponents at distance. But in each hand, he also carried weapons. In one hand, a thrusting spear that weighed over 14 pounds. And the other, a sword that we must assume was in proportion to his body. The narrator clearly wants Goliath to make a big impression on the reader. An impression that he clearly had on Israel's fighters as they fearfully watched him taunt and challenge them. For 40 days, morning and evening, this intimidating specimen would terrorize Saul's army, including Saul himself, saying, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. And the Bible makes clear what effect this had. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Now, to emphasize the man-on-man, or as the young people say, one-v-one nature of this conflict, the narrator spends an equal amount of time describing David. But in regards to this second combatant, we don't hear much that will really impress us if we have physical combat in mind. Here we have a young man who comes from the tribe of Judah, from a family that settled in Bethlehem. He's one of eight sons, but he's the youngest son. He's not one of the three sons who is in Saul's army. He's no warrior. And even though we understand at this point in 1 Samuel that he was Saul's armor bearer at one point in time, At this particular point in time, he appears to be little more than an errand boy who brings food to his brothers and his brother's captains and brings reports from the battle back to his father. It's the bronze-clad behemoth versus Jesse's errand boy. Now, Goliath believed he saw this confrontation accurately because when he faced David, he said this, Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And then he cursed David. We read, the Philistine said to David, come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. But don't forget what we already know about David. We know that David is a man after God's own heart. We know that David is a man whom the Spirit of God rushed upon. We know that David is the man who will become Israel's king, who will become God's king 
for Israel. And so this is a conflict full of tension and intrigue and suspense. And I think we can learn from this as we consider how the narrator has described the combatants. We can learn from this first layer of the conflict by reminding ourselves that it is the Lord's, the battle, the battle is the Lord's. And further reminding ourselves that it's the Lord's preference often to use the weak to accomplish his victory. In 1 Corinthians, Paul notes that the weakness of God is stronger than men, 1 Corinthians 1.25. And he goes on to say, for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God, 1 Corinthians 1, 26 through 29. In his second letter to the Corinthians, Paul would say, for the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong, 2 Corinthians 12, 10. The conflict of David and Goliath and the ensuing victory that David wins is a reminder to us in our day that the battles we face are the Lord's battles. It's a reminder to us that salvation and victory and deliverance will be achieved by him. And our weakness does not put him at a tactical disadvantage. In fact, the opposite of true. It's a reminder to us in our day that instead of feigning strength, that instead of deceiving ourselves, that we have the kind of strength that we need to achieve the kind of victory we want, we should rather focus our attention on God's strength on who he is, on what he has done, and on what he promises that he will do. My prayer for you as you face difficulties, as you face your enemies, as you enter into conflict, no matter what it is, that you will lean into the strength of God as the God who delivers, as the God who always prevails, and that you'll know that the battle is the Lord's. Now, Goliath defied God individually and defied Israel individually, but he represented his people, the Philistines, and that's my second point. This is the second layer of this conflict, a conflict of national hostility. The second layer of this conflict is between the nation of Israel and Philistines. The Philistines were longtime enemies of Israel, and the general consensus among experts indicates that they probably came to Canaan uh, from areas around the Aegean Sea, and they settled in the southern coastlands of Canaan. They were an aggressive and warlike people. And the confrontation described in today's chapter seems to be instigated by the Philistines. 
We read that the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah. The Philistines had penetrated into and invaded land allotted to the tribe of Judah. Soko is a location about 24 kilometers due west of Bethlehem. And we get a sense of the nation versus nation conflict if we just take for a minute and imagine the scene before us. There were two mountains in this scene and a valley in between them. On one mountain, on one side of the valley, were the Philistines encamped in large numbers and ready for war. Across the valley on the other mountain are the Israelites. A scenario just like this has played itself out many, many times in the history of the world. I'm currently reading a best-selling book on D-Day. And as I've read page after page, I've come to see that after the British and American and Canadian troops successfully entered into Normandy on the beaches known as Utah and Omaha and gold and Juno and sword, the battle for France was a continual battle comprised of forming battle lines. And the Germans would line up on one side and the allied forces would line up on the other and they'd fight. And those battle lines would move and keep moving. That's what we have here. One nation lined up against another nation. And really this battle between two men, between David and Goliath, was symbolic of the violence between these two nations. Now this violence, this conflict, initially did start over land. In Exodus, God promised Israel land, some of which was inhabited by Philistines. We read in Exodus 23, verse 1. And I will set your border from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines, and from the wilderness to the Euphrates. For I will give you the inhabitants of the land into your hand, and you shall drive them out before you. This was still the case as Joshua, after the conquest of Canaan, grew old. We read in Joshua 13, verses 1 and 2. Now Joshua was old and advanced in years. And the Lord said to him, you are old and advanced in years. And there remains yet very much land to possess. This is the land that yet remains, all the regions of the Philistines. And then, as I said, we go on to the time of the judges, and specifically Jephthah and Shamgar and Samson. They all battled Philistines. And so this confrontation between two men represents a larger confrontation between two nations. But if we think it was only about land or primarily about land, I think we would be wrong. There is a cultural conflict going on here between people who believe in the one true God, Yahweh, and people who believe and serve false gods. We see this framed in the words of David and Goliath in this chapter. As we consider David now on the battle lines, witnessing the confrontation, we can understand that there is some religious overtones to this conflict. We read, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. 
And David heard him. What was David's reaction when he heard him? We read about it, verse 26. And David said to the men who stood by him, what shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? So David frames this. He's not just defying Israel. He's defying the God of Israel. He says the same thing to Saul. He frames it this this way. And then when David approached Goliath on the battlefield, we're told that Goliath cursed David. How did he curse him? Goliath cursed David by his gods, by the gods of Philistine. And what was David's response? I come against you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. So it's not just the armies you've defied, but you've defied God. And he proclaims to Goliath, before the battle takes place, the Lord will deliver you into my hands. And so this fight between David and Goliath, this combat is a picture of two nations who have always been at war. It's representative of the people who believe and follow the one true God and those who worship false gods and the enemies of the one true God. Now in regards to that particular layer and and to find a way to transfer us to the next point, let us consider for a minute what it means to be on God's team or on God's side. The Bible has many different ways of describing that, but as it pertains to today's passage, let's look at Revelation chapter 19, verse 19. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. So we have the armies that are gathered with the beast And they're lined up against the one who is on the horse and his armies. Let us understand that the one sitting on the horse is God's great king and son, Jesus Christ. And his army is comprised of the saints. Believers have put their faith in great King Jesus. Let me remind you, and I think this is important in our day and age, that the delineation of those who are on God's side and those who are not on God's side is no longer an issue of nationhood. The people of God are no longer determined by what nation state they belong to. Those who are on God's side are now determined by belief. They have believed and put their faith in great King Jesus. And to believe in biblical terms is to put your personal faith and trust in a person. And that person is the king who's sitting on the horse in Revelation 19. It's Jesus. To believe in him is to believe that he existed. That he is who he said he was. That is, he's God's son, God himself, and the savior of mankind. To believe according to the Bible is to trust and treasure Jesus' salvation, the victory he won through his death and resurrection, whereby he defeated the powers of evil, whereby he won forgiveness for mankind. 
and in which believers are joined to him. They are engrafted on his side through the Holy Spirit. So let us understand this morning that all of humanity is on one side or the other. And you want to be on God's side because God always prevails. So my encouragement to any who haven't this morning is that you believe and trust in this King Jesus. Believe he is who he said he was and he did what he said he did and and trust yourself to the salvation he worked through his death on the cross and his resurrection. And if you have any questions about that or would like help in understanding it, please talk to me or one of the other staff members. We'd be happy to help you. But that leads us into my last point this morning, the last layer I want to talk about. Point number three a conflict of universal animosity. One commentator describes this whole chapter as an instance of the age-long antagonism between the two seeds. What is antagonism between two seeds? What's the commentator talking about? This idea comes from the early chapters of Genesis. And it's one of the ways that theologians have used to describe the entire narrative of redemption history. You see, after the fall of mankind, through the sin of Adam and Eve, God curses those who are involved. And he begins with a curse over the serpent who deceived the humans. And this is what he says. Now, I'm going to read this from the King James Version. Because the King James Version uses the word seed. and the ESV, it's offspring. But as we talk about this antagonism between two seeds, let me read Genesis 3, verse 14 and 15 from the King James Version. And the Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle, and above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly thou shalt go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. According to Genesis 3, there will be a conflict from now on, from the very beginning, between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. The enmity between the seed of the woman, that is the offspring of the woman, and the seed of the serpent, the offspring of the serpent, is described by Andrew Nicelli in his book, The Serpent and the Serpent Slayer. He explains, God cursed not only the snake, but also the snake's offspring. He cursed them with enmity. The rest of the Bible storyline traces the ongoing battle between the snake's offspring and the woman's offspring. Humans are either children of God or children of the devil. In other words, this conflict of David and Goliath is a representative conflict. And it represents the conflict between the seed of the women and the seed of the serpent. The conflict between good and evil. Now there is something 
in the text, which gives us a hint to think about this idea of the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And it's found in verse five. Verse five in the ESV, and speaking of Goliath said, says, he had a helmet of bronze on his head and he was armed with a coat of mail. That word translated male here in 1 Samuel occurs eight times in the Bible. And every other time it occurs, seven times it occurs, that word is translated scale. And it refers to the scales of fish and of reptiles and even of a sea dragon. And so the author of 1 Samuel has declared that Goliath, as he comes to battle, is covered in scales. And I think that's a hint that helps us to think about this idea of the seed of the serpent. Can I suggest to you that the conflict between David and Goliath is representative of the conflict between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent? Can I suggest to you that Goliath being covered with scales is described that way so we see him as a type of the serpent from Genesis? And that David himself is a type of the serpent slayer. He's a type of Christ. And David as a type of Christ is a beautiful and empowering truth of scripture. And it's seen in a lot of ways in this story. I've come across many iterations of what I'm about to read to you, but I'm gonna use one that a congregant sent to me this week. The congregant in an email noted the following. This is a story where a father sends his son. A son who was from Bethlehem, who sent to care for his family, who are oppressed by an evil, loudmouthed oppressor who defies the people of God. The evil one's main weapon is fear, and his purpose is to steal glory from God. The people are lacking godly leadership, the leadership of a shepherd. A shepherd who intends to bring glory to God. This shepherd is viewed as weak. He's unarmed. He comes in a different spirit and manner than expected. But he is confident that God can and will save his people. He refuses personal protection. He meets the evil villain in battle and uses the evil one's weapons against him to destroy him and win the battle. Brothers and sisters, David is a type of the one true and greater serpent slayer, Jesus. This conflict is meant for us to look in admiration at David, but to move beyond that for a greater admiration and a greater esteem for David's greater son, Jesus. Jesus is the true and greater serpent slayer who crushed the head of the enemy and will return one day to do away with him. Jesus is the great offspring of the woman who has defeated all the snakes and dragons that oppose God and that oppose God's people. He is a glorious warrior who snatched victory from the jaws of defeat in his death. And he confirmed that glorious victory in his resurrection and in the salvation of his people. 
And he is the serpent slayer who will finalize that victory in the eventual and inevitable casting down of the dragon. Brothers and sisters, we should rejoice in this great truth. We should rejoice in the great story of Jesus the serpent slayer, a story that towers over the story of David and Goliath because it's a much greater conflict against a much greater enemy and it has an infinitely greater serpent slayer who crushes the serpent's head. Ultimately, the story of David and Goliath is not about how we can be like David and slay the giants in our life, though certainly there is something to be learned in regards to that. And ultimately, this story isn't about the people of God and those who are not the people of God, though it clearly touches upon that in regards to the Israelites and even the seed of the woman. Ultimately, this story is the story about God who always prevails and the foolishness of defying him. It's a story that is ultimately about God the son, the true and greater seed of the woman, the true and greater serpent slayer who defeats the one who is known as a deceiving snake and a devouring dragon. It's the story of a victorious champion who uses our weakness to reveal his strength. It is about being in union with that champion by believing in him that we might live forever with him. It is a story about the one true God who prevails over everyone who defies him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this wonderful story of David and Goliath. I would pray, Father God, that above all else, above all the things that we can learn from this story, all the depths that we could delve into that would reveal things about you and your ways and what you've done in history. I pray most of all that you would open our eyes to the glory of Jesus, to the glory of the true and greater seed of the woman, to the glory of the great serpent slayer who has won a victory for his people through his death and resurrection. I pray for those who have never believed in Jesus, that you would help them to see Jesus clearly and believe. And I pray for those who already believe in him, that they would lean into their God and their Savior and understand that the battle is yours and that you always prevail. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.